Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Do we want to talk about our personal experiences with serotonin and SSRIs? SSRIs. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, cool. Yeah, because as I was researching this, I had just been not diagnosed. (laughs) I was diagnosed a long time ago. I had just been prescribed an SSRI, and then I started looking into this, and I was like, holy shit, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. (laughs) Yeah, serotonin can be kind of scary. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you, um, do you have any, like, super negative experiences on SSRIs? So I I think that I had serotonin syndrome once no last way. when I because they prescribed me meds with that contraindicated, and did. I didn't realize it until after the fact when the pharmacist called me and I had already mm-hmm. taken them, and I was very, very ill, like, very yeah. ill, and that's when I – it was when I cracked my ribs. Oh, and shit. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was skating with Moose. Right, and you hit and, the, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I think that I had serotonin syndrome then. I know that I don't have enough of serotonin. Mm-hmm. That's what I know about serotonin. Well, what were you on that was contraindicated? I was on the amitriptyline at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and it was a muscle relaxer and one of right. the pain meds that they gave me. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember which ones they were. Yeah. But that was the problem. Yeah. That was the problem at hand. See, and I, I feel like pharmacists are almost like your last line of defense unless, like, you look it up yourself. Like, I know some pharmacists, pharmacists who are, like, really hardcore about like making sure that nothing is contraindicated and they'll contact the Mm -hmm. doctors and they'll talk to the patient be like are you on anything else but it's like you really have to check anytime anything is added to your medication list like Mm -hmm. you really do because this because this was like and i mean i went to an urgent care that my primary was with Mm -hmm. and so they knew what i was already on Mm -hmm. but they prescribed it anyway and so I feel kind of I felt kind of wronged. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, yeah, you anyhow. just wait until this story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do we have trigger warnings for this episode? Yes, yes, we do have trigger warnings for hospitalization, physical restraint, and medical malpractice. Sounds like fun on a bun. Yeah, it's a bummer of an episode. I have to say, like, I think people will find it interesting. I think they will find it useful. I mean. As I was researching, I was actually experiencing some pretty negative side effects with the SSRI. I had just been prescribed, and my therapist, who's not an MD and was just, like, helping me through the, like, emotional side of things, but, like, mm-hmm. I had a PCP who was supposed to help with medical management. So my therapist was like, are you sure that it's not serotonin syndrome you're experiencing? And I was like, I don't have a fever. I'm not twitching. I just have a massive migraine because Lexapro, which is what I was on, Pulls sodium out of your blood, and I have just low blood sodium, low blood pressure and all Mm. that to begin with. And my PCP didn't listen to me when I told her that. So I just, I felt very emotionally connected to this story, you know. Right. Yeah. 
Yep. I was, I was on Lexapro recently. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hitting the bag. So now I'm on an SNRI. And what is an um, SNRI for the listeners? Serotonin norepinephrine. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Norepinephrine. Norepinephrine. Reuptake inhibitor. Yep. Thank yeah. you. And thank what you. is an SSRI then that we've been discussing? Serotonin. <laughs> Selective serotonin. Selective serotonin. <laughs> yes. 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 So do you generally know what serotonin is? I know that it's a chemical in the brain mm-hmm. that brings happy feelings. Very good. <laughs> That's what I know. That's what I know. And I know I don't have enough of it. And same, I need more, same please. <laughs> so what what is it more in detail? So serotonin is a neurotransmitter, and it's typically... That's the fancy way of saying it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it is typically associated with feeling good, feeling positive. And specifically, it's a monoamine neurotransmitter. So one amine, one group that has a nitrogen on it. And the kind of antidepressant that we'll be talking about in today's episode is not an SSRI, but it is an MAOI, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And so, I've heard of that before. Yes. yes. Yeah, I don't know that it's common. I mostly hear it in like the fine print of commercials that mm-hmm. say don't take with an MAOI. Right. But this kind of antidepressant prevents the breakdown of serotonin. It prevents, it prevents the oxidase happening, the oxidation happening of a monoamine. So am I understanding it like it preserves what you already have there? It's not giving you more? Right. Is that right. Ki- kind of the deal? Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And people who are familiar with their neurotransmitters, you know, I'm sure you've also heard of dopamine and you might wonder like, well, dopamine and serotonin both make me happy. Like, how do they function? So dopamine is associated with reward and motivation and serotonin is more associated with feelings of like happiness and calm. Like when you get sunshine Mm. after a long winter, which I have been experiencing recently, Mm -hmm. you feel a little better. You feel a little lighter and that's serotonin. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. And serotonin also influences learning, memory, body temperature, sleep, sexual behavior, and hunger. So it, like, you can see how that plays into depression, but it really impacts, Mm -hmm. like, a lot that goes on with us emotionally. And what I think is interesting is that I always thought that low serotonin was the cause for depression, which I'm sure you probably thought, too. Like, Mm -hmm. the serotonin theory is, like, if you have low serotonin, you have depression. And this was a theory that was suggested in 1967 But it was debunked pretty soon after it was suggested in the 1960s. And so today, like, the theory of serotonin being linked to depression is it doesn't have a very strong causal link. Mostly it has continued to have this strong link amongst lay people and even, you know, people like me. I, I don't research psychiatry or psychology or anything so i thought that there was a strong link but that is mostly because the creators of ssris and maois and tricyclic antidepressants found success marketing their drugs for depression and like Mm. i know it's kind of a cynical outlook to have like oh it's just been marketed to us this way but it kind of has been and like not without reason because like even though it was debunked it was debunked as like low serotonin is the only cause of depression Mm. which is not what it is and so like serotonin is also called 5-ht hydroxytryptamine and we have a lot of 
5-HT receptors, and we call them serotonin receptors the same reason that we call, like, our nicotinic receptors, like, we call them that because nicotine adheres to them. But it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that, like, serotonin That's the is... only thing. Right, right. And so okay. serotonin receptors, these 5-HT receptors, are still central in depression research, but... Like, we know now that it's not the only thing at play. And we actually know that people who just experience depression don't respond very well to SSRIs because that's not the only thing that's going on with them. And so when I was talking to my therapist and I had been researching for this episode, I was like, hey, you just prescribed me something that is known to not do super well for depression. So I don't know if I want to continue with this but paradoxically i am feeling better and i don't know if that's just the placebo effect Mm, so -hmm. what my therapist told me was yes she was aware that there is this research out there about 5-ht and depression however when you're someone like me who's experiencing depression and anxiety you actually see a lot more benefit and it's because it's a lot more complex than low serotonin equals depression there's there's more at play right And Mm -hmm. so for me, I was actually experiencing maybe a little bit of placebo effect, like let's be honest, but also just like there's something more complex that the SSRI was acting on. Whereas people who just have depression, they maybe need something like they need to quit their job and do something else or they need to like have a stronger like social network because the genetic or the social things that are also going on with them is outweighing any sort of biochemical impact that these 5-HTD receptors might have. Sure, sure. So, Because you could take all of the antidepressants in the world, but if you're not making changes, nothing's going to change. Totally, totally. And so you might be wondering, how does somebody become poisoned criminally (laughs) with something that is endogenous to them? Because that is the whole premise of this show. And now I'm presenting you... The depression chemical or the happiness chemical has been used criminally. And, like, it has. It has in a fucked up way, in a roundabout way. So, of course, it has. (laughs) So, today we are telling the story of Libby Zion and serotonin syndrome. In March of 1984, Libby Zion was an 18 year old student at Bennington College in Vermont. She was living with her parents in Manhattan's Upper West Side for the time being as part of a work-study program through her school that landed her a job working for the New York City Council president. When she first moved to New York in January, she began seeing a psychiatrist named Dr. Kenneth Greenspan for stress management through a biofeedback technique that was primarily breathing exercises and mindfulness. On January 19th, Libby had told Dr. Greenspan that she felt like she had been acting like someone else for her entire life. She didn't feel like she was ever really herself. And Dr. Greenspan diagnosed her with atypical depression caused by a chemical imbalance. Mm. And he prescribed her the antidepressant Nardole, which is an MAOI, and he prescribed her the benzodiazepine Valium as well as Dalmain for insomnia. So I don't remember the family that Dalmain belongs to, but the reason she was prescribed a benzodiazepine is probably for acute anxiety. Sure. By March, Libby seemed like she was doing fine. She was working out with her medications. She was doing a little bit better. 
Dr. Greenspan was helping her navigate her depression and anxiety and had even convinced her to overcome her phobia of dentists in order to have a rotten tooth removed that had been bothering her. The dentist, a Dr. Wasserman, recalled that Libby handled the appointment well, considering that on top of her phobia and pain, which he gave her 20 percodan to manage because it was the 80s, she, sure. <laughs> she also had some symptoms of an oncoming cold. So she just wasn't doing super well that day. And she'd actually had to go to a pediatrician just before seeing Dr. Wasserman because of her cold symptoms, which included a runny nose and an earache. Okay. There, there was no sign of an infection that the pediatrician, Dr. Shapiro, could see. There was no inflammation, no fluid, and she didn't have a fever. But it was the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> And so just to be safe, Dr. Shapiro prescribed the antibiotic erythromycin and told Libby to pick up some OTC, chlortrimeton. Libby's last day of work in New York was March 2nd, since she had to be back in Vermont on March 5th. Her co-workers threw her a big going-away party, but she felt so poorly that she couldn't even stay long for her own party. Like, her cold was getting worse, she wasn't feeling good, she just had a tooth pulled. Mm -hmm. So she told her mom, Elsa, that it actually wasn't her, like, tooth or her gums that was hurting her, but she primarily was experiencing a sore throat and a fever of 101. So, like... Oh, wow. Not nothing. Big, yeah. Yeah, big fever. Yeah. Over the weekend, she continued to get worse. Her mother recalled that she thought Libby took some Tylenol, and when Libby's ex-boyfriend, who, like had actually just broken up with her earlier that week, but, like, maybe was coming by to be like, hey, I know you're leaving New York, hope we're cool, whatever. Mm -hmm. He came to visit, and he said that Libby was hot, sweaty, and not thinking clearly, like, was kind of out of it. And Libby told him that she was having a bad reaction to her Nardil, but she hadn't mentioned this to anyone else. And, like, I don't know when the boyfriend was asked about all of this. Maybe she knew that she was having a bad reaction, but, like, maybe not. Like, maybe this came out after the fact. But for the time being, it mostly just seemed like Libby had come down with something. Like, Libby, to everybody else, it seemed like Libby had a cold. On Sunday, her fever was 102. So she'd been having a fever for at least, like, three days that was pretty high. But she was still, like, up and about and trying to do stuff for most of the day. And most people who were asked about it afterwards didn't think she looked too badly, but, like, they could tell she really wasn't feeling well. She wasn't communicating clearly. And then at around 9.30 that night, she told her brother Adam that she was feeling so badly she was worried she was going to die. Shit. Yeah. She laid down on the floor and started rocking. And her brother was like, what is happening? He checked her out. He said her pupils were dilated. She was sweating. Her breathing was irregular. And she was speaking in, like, a weird baby voice. And so Adam was like, this is not Libby. I've never seen her like this. And her parents were actually out at a party that night. Like, they were both at her parents' like Upper West Side apartment. But they were gone, and so it was just Adam and his younger sister, and he was so concerned about, like, her state of mind and her temperature that he thought maybe he should put her in an ice bath to, like, cool her down. Cool her down, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was able to call them at the party, but, you know, it was the 80s, so he did, had to, like, 
call the apartment. Call a house phone. Yeah. 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 And so, like, it took a while to get to them. They took a while to get home. And by the time they got back to the apartment, Libby was completely out of it. And, like, they would move her around and her eyes were just rolling into the back of her head. Like, things were bad. Things were very clearly bad at this point. And so they called a doctor friend who was a very controversial figure in this story because was he your friend? The Zions say yes. Dr. Sherman himself says no. He was just a doctor who, like, mostly saw Sidney Zion, the father, and occasionally saw Libby. It's, okay. it's, it's all weird. I read a book called The Girl Who Died Twice, and she talks a lot about the, like, interpersonal relationships, primarily because it was a friend of the family who wrote the book, so she knew. Mm. But, like, I just... I wanted to take this episode and boil it down. What happened to Libby that night? Because this is what is important, right? Mm -hmm. And so they called Dr. Sherman and they asked him to come over to the apartment and check Libby out. But he told them, like, I'm not making a house call. Take her to the emergency room at New York Hospital where I work and I can vouch for the people who work there. And I will have an attending doctor. Like, I will inform him that you are coming to the ER and they'll comfort you, they'll help you out, they'll keep me in touch, it'll be fine. But I'm not coming over, you need to take her to the ER. Okay. So at this point, all that Dr. Sherman claimed to have known was that she had a tooth extraction and she had a fever. And so he kind of just figured she has a virus that's been going around. She just has a virus and she has a high fever. So Libby and her parents arrived at the ER around 11.45 that night and told the admitting nurse that Libby's main problem was a fever, which, yeah, it kind of seems like a fever. Like, she has a fever so bad that she's sweating and is incoherent. Like, sure, it seems like a fever. Mm -hmm. But while she was having this fever presentation, she could not sit still. She was, like, up and was just like, I'm so uncomfortable. She kept saying how she was burning up. She was sweating through her clothes, and her skin was really pink. Like, she had looked like she'd been sunburned. And no one thought that she was dying or anything, because, again, she just seems like she has a really bad fever. So they had to wait an hour and a half. That's, like, pretty standard for waiting in an ER sure. before sure. they were seen. When she was finally seen, her temperature was taken, and she had a fever now of 102.9. So she was, she was given a bed she had some blood drawn she had an iv placed and there were indications that she told staff her fever had reached 106 over the weekend while she was monitoring at home oh wow but i'm not sure if this was ever written down or anything i think this was just this was just her verbally explaining this is how bad i've been over mm -hmm. the weekend so at this point one of the doctors who had been contacted finally met up with the family like he had, he had talked to dr sherman dr sherman said look out for this family and then he was like oh you you're the girl i've been waiting to see mm -hmm. his name was dr leonard and he examined libby and he took her history he asked her about the medication she was on and her mother said that she mentioned everything in her statement to the author that i was reading she mentioned everything libby was on and so that may have included the erythromycin, the percodam, the trimeton, but she very specifically mentioned the nardal and the Tylenol. And Libby clarified that, like, actually, I haven't taken any erythromycin recently or nardal today. I haven't taken my antidepressant because I've been feeling so badly. I just mm. haven't really taken anything but Tylenol. So 
Dr. Leonard took her blood pressure as part of her vitals, and he took her blood pressure lying down, and it was 110 over 60. And healthy blood pressure is 120 over 80. She had a pulse of 100, which is a little high, but when she sat up, her blood pressure dropped to 80 over 50, and she had a pulse oh, wow. of 130. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not good. Not good. Like, you and I aren't doctors, and we're like, that is not good. That's that not is... good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it should be known, it's worth mentioning, that Nardal was a controversial drug when Libby was prescribed it in the 80s because one of the known side effects was a lowering of blood pressure. But this sudden drop in blood pressure when sitting up is called orthostatic hypotension and in itself is a problem. Like, it does not matter what drug you are on. If you sit up and your blood pressure drops, like... I think I've primarily seen this in people who, like, recall being hospitalized for, like, eating disorders and stuff. And I think that, like, you can either skyrocket or go down. But they they see that and they're like, oh, no, you are not good. You need to lie down and we need to take care mm -hmm. of you lying down. It can be a symptom of dehydration, which, I mean, Libby may have been suffering dehydration because of her profuse sweating. But sure. notably, orthostatic hypotension can also be a symptom of a drug reaction. Mm. More importantly, a sudden drop in blood pressure can cause heart failure, and it should not be taken lightly. Dr. Leonard, I don't, I don't know how much emphasis he put on this, but he continues to ask Libby about her history, and he asks her about her recreational drug use. And she admits that, yeah, she smokes pot, but she hadn't done any that day. And she said that she hadn't done anything else illicitly that day either. But what he noticed is that she was rocking and she was making random movements with her arms or legs. So she would she would be sitting and then she would like throw her arm up or like her leg would kick out. Or she would suddenly stand up and sit down. Like she just really to the extreme could not sit still. And she seemed to be very agitated, but it didn't seem like the movements had any motivation, you know, like it didn't seem like, it had a pattern or anything. It didn't seem like my shoulder hurts, and so I'm, like, throwing my arm out because my shoulder hurts, and I'm trying to work a knot out of it. Like, there was nothing to it. It didn't seem related to pain. It was just really weird, but constant. Random. Random movements. Yeah. So, blood tests confirmed that she was, in fact, dehydrated, but they also showed she wasn't suffering from a bacterial infection. She also didn't have any fluid in the lungs because they took an x-ray and could see that. And she didn't appear to have any sort of heart condition. But her fever persisted, and she was completely unable to sit still. And this actually did seem to bother her at times because she needed to sit still, and she couldn't control the need to move. You know, like, they would be taking mm. blood, and she would, like, really have to focus on staying still or just couldn't for these things that she right. needed to be still for. And Dr. Leonard, he observed this over the course of two hours, and they continued to take her temperature because she's being admitted for a high fever. And so over the course of just this two hours that she's being observed and examined in the ER, her temperature rose to 103.5. Oh, wow. So Dr. Leonard called Dr. Sherman. He called him multiple times while Libby was in the ER. And while they didn't think that her condition was critical, they were worried about her fever and they weren't sure what the underlying cause for the bodily movements were. And so they decided that she should be admitted to the hospital for further observation. And now that she was admitted, 
Her care was transferred to a second-year resident named Dr. Stone and a first-year resident named Dr. Weinstein, who neither of them thought that Libby was critically ill upon their examination of her. And they actually believed that all of these weird movements were voluntary and they were mm. the acts of a, quote, agitated, anxious child with a history of depression. And that it was just a result of her being hyperactive. Mm. At, the, at the point that she was admitted, it was around 1.45 in the morning. And Libby's tired. She's had a fever for days. She kept saying that she was really, really tired, but she could not calm down. She couldn't sit down. She couldn't get comfortable. She was still, I mean, they're calling it hyperactive, but she just, she can't sit down. Having she all can't. these involuntary movements. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... So she was thrashing in her hospital bed. She was cursing incoherently. There was a little, like, fuck this and fuck that and just a lot of fucks being thrown around. And... Because she was admitted for a fever, very little of any of this was noted in her records. It was just she has a fever, but they weren't noting her involuntary or voluntary movements. They weren't noting that she seemed hyperactive or any of these things that they're coloring her examination with. It was just high fever. One of the doctors actually thought that she was lying about her medical history and referred to her in her records as a poor historian. <laughs> But they never considered that her state of mind was impacting her ability to answer questions. Yeah, she has a fucking 103 degree fever. What do you expect? Like, Yeah. <laughs> and her parents weren't with her 100% of the time. I mean, Libby's 18, so she technically is an adult. But she is being treated as a child. She did come mm -hmm. into the ER with her parents. And like you said, she has a, a fever of 103. And so nobody is really there to, like, advocate for her. And so right. when she was being transferred and questioned, like, there's just nobody who's able to be like, this is weird. That's a little weird. That's not actually the correct answer. I think there's something deeper going on with her. Because they were asking her questions that, like, should have obvious answers, and she was answering incorrectly. Like, they were like, mm. how many brothers do you have? And she said she had one, and she had two brothers. Oh, wow. Like, had her parents been present for that question in particular, they could have been like, that's a weird thing to answer that's right. correctly. Right, right. So she's answering to the best of her ability, which is not good. They think that she's lying, and, like, maybe she is lying, like, she's not giving the answers that are correct, but, like, her, her but medical... She, but, it's, but she's not lying, not lying of her own volition. Yeah. Yeah, she's not trying to deceive anybody. She's... Right. Yeah. And she's so, giving She's giving out the wrong information because that's what her brain is processing at the time. Right. And so her medical history is getting all weird. She... But she does keep, like, having the complaint, like, I am burning up. I'm having trouble breathing. I can't pee. Like, I am not doing well, you guys. And so just after 2 in the morning, Dr. Stone told her parents that they were going to test for meningitis. We aren't sure what's going on for her, but because of just her agitation, we're going to test for meningitis. But until these results come in, all that can really be done is that we keep her IV in. And that had actually been yanked out a couple times because of all these movements that she's happening. But they're like, mm -hmm. we just need to keep her hydrated. We just need to keep her under observation. But she's going to be fine in our care. Really, you can go home. And 
the Zions didn't want to leave Libby. Like, they hadn't been with her 100% of the time, but they were like, we want to be with her for this. Like, this is not good. We want to know how things are becoming updated as they are becoming updated. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can't easily be called, you know? So, like, we want to be here as things are changing. But they were like, it's New York Hospital. Like, we know Dr. Sherman, and Dr. Sherman has basically spoken for all of you. So, like, I guess I guess Libby's in good care. Like, it is 2 in the morning. We should probably go home. But they also hadn't been made aware that the people that she was in the care of had already pretty badly colored their positions of her condition. Mm. So they weren't aware that Dr. Stone had summarized her condition and her records by saying that she had, quote, viral syndrome with hysterical symptoms. No. He called her hysterical. And later he would say, like, I wasn't trying to say medically she was hysterical, but it's like, you called her hysterical. Yeah. So around 2.45 in the morning, the Zions left for the night. They told Libby to try to sleep well and that they would see her later that morning. We'll come back first thing in the morning and we'll come visit you and see how you're doing and we'll probably take you home then. And although she was under the care of both doctors Stone and Weinstein, Dr. Weinstein was the main person responsible for Libby's care. And again, as I said earlier, this was a first-year resident. So Dr. Stone, he has seniority. He gets to kind of supervise everything, but he get, he gets to go home, essentially. Like, once his work's done, he gets to go home. Mm-hmm. Dr. Weinstein is the one who will be there throughout the course of the night. But when Libby was given a room, it was in part of the hospital called Payson 5. And Dr. Weinstein was mostly working on Payson 3, which was two floors away. Hmm. So to care for Libby, Dr. Weinstein had to divide her attention between multiple floors and I think something like 40 patients that night. Dr. Weinstein, as I said, first year resident. And I didn't know this when I was first reading the story. But a resident, a first year resident is an intern. A first year resident is a unlicensed practitioner of medicine. They are not a doctor yet. Hmm. And in fact, because they're still in their residency and they haven't, they have to complete their residency before Mm -hmm. they get Mm -hmm. their doctorate, right? Yeah. Yeah. I never watched Grey's Anatomy, so I never learned how the residency works until this story. Gotcha. But but yeah. So Dr. Weinstein actually didn't even receive her medical license until the end of July 1984. And we're in March right now. So they're a trainee and they, you know, they're residents. They used to actually reside in the hospital between, like, 1890 and 1945. They were the people who stayed in the hospital. By 1984, the residents at New York Hospital were not, they weren't living in the hospital. They got to go stay in their apartments at the end of their shift. But they were the greatest population of employees at this teaching hospital. They outnumbered the people who actually were licensed. And mm. Part of this was because, at this time, Medicaid and Medicare would pay hospitals for the services of residents to treat the elderly, the uninsured, and the Mm low-income patients because residents were cheaper to pay than full attending doctors. They even gave teaching hospitals grants for training doctors. But it is worth questioning how much they were being taught and how much they were just scrambling together because I'm the only one who's here and I have to figure it out and I'm a first-year resident. 
So the author of The Girl Who Died Twice, Natalie Robins, she said that there was concern in 1984 about residents essentially controlling the hospital as far as decisions being made about patients, decisions being made about their medications. And it was partially because they were afraid to ask for help. Like you you really got rewarded for getting through a night or getting through a shift without, without bothering sure. the second Quote year or, yeah. or the attending. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And so they were afraid to ask for help or there's just no one around. The second year is already gone home and I have to just fucking figure it out. And they're there out. by themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Dr. Weinstein's supervisor, Dr. Stone, the second year resident, he was a licensed junior assistant resident that was responsible for teaching people like Dr. Weinstein. But notably, he was also still a student. Despite... So the students are teaching students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Which is fine when you're a chemistry student and you're teaching labs to you know undergrad students but when you're dealing with people's like life and death and medical situations like i don't know right. that this is a good system but so despite this hierarchy dr stone was not required to superintend over dr weinstein's decisions regarding libby's ion he was there to kind of look over and make sure everything was okay but dr weinstein got the final say and Libby, when she was admitted to the hospital, she was considered an easy case who had been brought into a crowded hospital expecting private care. Because I didn't mention this earlier, but Sydney Zion was actually a novelist and a pretty, like, well-off lawyer. I mean, they were living on Manhattan's Upper West Side. And so the Zion family, fairly well-to-do, pretty comfortable. And so when they came to the hospital, they were expecting Libby to get a private room and to get essentially nonstop monitored care, right? Which mm -hmm. is a little much to be expected. To, right. Especially at a teaching hospital. Sure. But they were like, okay, this rich girl, she came in, she wants a private room, she just has a fever, she'll be fine. Just let her sleep it off with an IV here and she'll be okay. It's totally fine. And Dr. Weinstein was expected to deal with her case like a real doctor because she was training to be a real doctor and so you sure. need to look at this case and make decisions like you would if you were licensed she was supposed to listen to the advice of doctors stone sherman and Le leonard who dr leonard in the er he was another second year resident but her patients were in her care these patients are your problem and besides doctors sherman and stone were allowed to go home when their work was done you're on your own. You can call us, but kind of don't. But don't call us, yeah. Yeah. So Libby Zion, she was admitted on a Sunday when the hospital was actually typically understaffed. Dr. Weinstein was the intern on call, meaning that she was working overnight at the hospital that day. And because it was a Sunday, Dr. Weinstein was the only person responsible for all the patients on patient three and F3 East, which were the private medical floors, and that's where Libby's parents were expecting her to go. But she was also responsible for the patients, which were usually cared for, typically during the rest of the week, by two other trainees on floors with semi-private rooms, including patient five, which is what Libby was on. So because it's a Sunday, they're like, well, some of you can just do the work of three people because it's a Sunday. Right. So Weinstein had actually been on this shift, I mean, not working 
the work of three people, but she'd been on the same shift since February. She'd been working these overnights and had been working between 95 and 110 hours a week on this oh, wow. shift. Because, That's crazy. Yeah. In 1984, there was no maximum hours that she was allowed to work as a first-year resident. Wow. I know. That's like, kind of insane. It's insane to, like, think that there's even 110 waking hours in a week. Like, I don't right. think that there really are. <laughs> right. So, Dr. Weinstein said she believed Libby when she told her that she hadn't taken any drugs that night. When she said, I haven't taken any pot or anything. Dr. Weinstein believed her. But Weinstein wasn't fully convinced that she wasn't possibly coming off of something. Or, possibly, maybe she had some sort of infection or some sort of pneumonia, even though in the ER they had kind of ruled that out. So, Dr. Stone, he also ruled out, like, the drug theory because he was like, look, a days-long fever doesn't really line up with her coming off of something. It doesn't take four or five days mm -hmm. to come off of, like, cocaine. Right. He also ruled out neurological disease. He ruled out meningitis and toxic shock syndrome, which Dr. Leonard in the ER was like, I think she might have toxic shock syndrome. But Dr. Stone somehow ruled that out, and he ruled out a urinary tract infection because Libby was like, I can't pee. Could be a urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stone ruled that out. But he was considering the possibility of some sort of zoologic disease because she had a cat, and so he was like, oh, maybe her cat gave her a fever. Mm, I don't okay. know. I guess it's happened. I'm not a doctor, but he was sure. like, maybe this is it. But the fever was the primary concern. The fever was the reason that she had been admitted. And so it was the main concern of Dr. Leonard, Dr. Stone, and Dr. Weinstein. And Dr. Weinstein chose to control it with Tylenol and IV fluids. Fair enough. It is a fever. That is one way that you can at least mm -hmm. control the symptoms of a fever so her sure. brain doesn't melt. Right. As for the bodily movements and the contortions that Libby was being subjected to, Dr. Weinstein ordered 25 milligrams of the narcotic painkiller Demerol and would later state that Dr. Stone was there when she ordered it. He hadn't gone home yet and he oversaw her ordering this drug. The attending doctor, Dr. Sherman, would later say that he never prescribed Demerol for such a purpose in any patient. He would have never prescribed mm. Demerol for these involuntary or perhaps right. involuntary hyperactive movements. Sure. So Dr. Stone went home around 3 a.m., and the Demerol was administered around 3.30 a.m. by a nurse named Myrna Bald. Around 4 in the morning, Dr. Weinstein was doing her rounds and checked in on Libby. Her IV had been removed again, so she attached it to Libby's arm with gauze to keep it in place more securely. She noted that Libby still had the erratic movements and was still agitated, but less so than before. And I should note that 25 milligrams of Demerol is subtherapeutic, and so it won't have... It's a low dose. It, it's a low dose, and it won't have a really sedative effect, but she was expecting more impact on these erratic movements. Mm. And so Dr. Weinstein fin finishes up her rounds with her other patients, and then she leaves the floor because she has another set of patients two floors away. Right. But within 10 minutes of leaving, she was called back to Payson 5, like, on the phone because Libby was getting worse. And Nurse Bald noticed that Libby would get more agitated when she was alone. Her thrashing would get worse. She would get notably more incoherent and agitated. 
And all of that was very counterintuitive for the behavior of somebody with a rampant days-long fever. Like, right. You would think normally they'd would... be exhausted and absolutely like, exhausted. Would be tired. melted out. Yeah. Yeah. It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm tired. I was given Demerol. I've been on fire for three days. Like, right. She's not really experiencing any of that, and it seems kind of noteworthy. So Dr. Weinstein returns, and she saw that Libby's symptoms were persistent, according to her. This is the same thing I saw 10 minutes ago, but I don't think they're getting worse. But mm. either way, clearly this Demerol hasn't done a whole lot to calm her down. And the other patients in the ward are having a hard time sleeping because she's still yelling. She's still like saying, fuck this and fuck that. She's screaming. She's thrashing. And some of them, like in other rooms, were bothered. Like not just the room that mm. she was in, but like adjoining rooms. So, because of this, at 4.15, Bald's superior, Nurse Grismer, suggested that Libby should be physically restrained. Mm. She cited how she'd seen Libby throw off her blankets, try to remove her gown, and she and Bald had to stand on either side of Libby, on, you know, on either side of the bed, to keep her from getting out of it and trying to, like, crawl over the rails of the bed. She said that they'd asked Libby what they could do to help her, but she just kept kicking and cursing and hadn't answered in a coherent way, which, like, if she was admitted at 145 and wasn't coherent, I don't know why you'd expect mo more coherency at 4 o'clock in the morning. Like, I don't know. So Dr. Weinstein agrees to the physical restraints. Ugh. Because I guess these are just, like, yeah, we physically restrain patients all the time, which, like, I don't know what the pattern is for that now but that makes me deeply uncomfortable to think that people would be regularly physically restrained yeah so she instructs the nurses to just bind libby in a posy bed jacket and so that's a t-shirt and you know it's like a t-shirt gown essentially it's the same sort of kind of breathable fabric but there's a belt around the center and the belt is strapped to the bed and so you're held down by your midsection and then you're further held down because your whole shirt's holding you down but you can still move your shoulders you just can't really move from the middle okay and so libby's in this jacket and she keeps thrashing she can move her arms she can move her legs and so without consulting dr weinstein the nurses decide that they need to restrain libby's wrists and so now she's held down by her waist and by two points up top Obviously, she's not coherent. She's held down. She tries to free her arms, and she's throwing her legs and her body around to try to get free. And allegedly, according to the nurses, she was thrashing so hard she nearly broke a plate glass window near her bed. Oh, which, wow. like, that is intense thrashing. Why is there a plate right. glass window near the patient's bed? It's the 80s. I don't understand it. Yeah. But without consulting Dr. Weinstein again, they decide that now she needs four-point restraints. We're going to strap down her ankles as well. Wow. And Dr. Weinstein, she's completely gone from Pacen 5. She is not on the floor anymore. Nurse Greismer calls her again. The first time they called her was when they strapped her down with the posy jacket. They didn't call her when strapping down her wrists or her ankles. Now she's calling her again because she's like... She's strapped down with four points and this posy jacket. She's still thrashing. These restraints aren't working. But Dr. Weinstein said she was busy. She can't she can't come back to pace in five just for this okay. one patient. And so she's like, just tell me what's the description of her condition. Nurse Grismer told her that Libby's appearance and respiration hadn't changed. Everything is the same, but she's still thrashing pretty badly. 
So Dr. Weinstein ordered one milligrams of the antipsychotic Haldol to be administered intramuscularly. So this shot was given at 4.30, and Libby didn't acknowledge the nurses and didn't react to the needle. She is completely gone. But I don't think that that means she should have been administered an antipsychotic. Like, back to what we were saying with ketamine, I don't think people should be chemically restrained if they're having a bad time. Right. Within 20 minutes, she was asleep and breathing evenly, and Nurse Grismer described her skin temperature as not too hot or cold. I kind of don't believe that. I kind of wonder if Nurse Grismer actually checked in on her or not. Right. Right. At 5.30 in the morning, Nurse Bald also noted that Libby's breathing was regular and that the restraints had been removed at some time, but this hadn't been noted in her file anywhere. It's unsure who removed the restraints or when. 30 minutes later at 6 o'clock, she woke Libby up to give her her second dose of Tylenol. So she is admitted to the hospital with a fever and is only being given Tylenol once every four hours. This is only the second time she's been given something or her main complaint. But this was also not mentioned in Libby's chart. So there's actually some uncertainty about whether or not this Tylenol administration for her rampant fever even took place. Wow. According to Nurse Bald, her breathing was still regular and Libby looked flushed, but she didn't take her temperature. The temperature. Why? For... <laughs> yeah. The that's temperature literally for... <laughs> why she's there. Yes. Like, exactly. like that's literally like the problem. Like you think but if like, okay. she's there for a fever, it'd be like. You would... Let's see saying, if she still has a fucking fever. Yeah, and I'm not saying, like, oh, give her t- give her Tylenol every hour or anything. Like, that's not how you use Tylenol. But, like, I think you can do it once every three hours, and that's what Dr. Stone suggested. And Dr. Weinstein was like, oh, let's do it once every four. And then they're not monitoring every hour, which is what I would think, right. for her fever. Right. Yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So it wasn't until 6.30 a.m. that Libby's temperature was taken for the first time in three and a half hours by nurse's aide, Bronte McKend. First, she tried to get a rectal reading and then an oral reading, but Libby was moving too much. Like, despite being, like, somewhat heavily sedated by this point, she was still moving too much to get either of these readings. And so she eventually got a reading from the armpit which is one degree lower than oral rating, and I think two degrees or lower from a rectal rating. She recorded two temperatures, possibly both from Livy's armpit. She recorded 105.8 <sighs> and 107.6. Holy shit. This means that orally, her temperature was closer to 108 degrees and that rectally it would have been around 110 degrees. Holy shit. And who knows how long that had been going on. Had been it had been like that, right? Yeah. So McKend, the nurse's aide, mind you, recognized the danger and immediately went to Nurse Grismer with the readings, and she immediately called Dr. Weinstein. Dr. Weinstein instructed the nurses to apply a cold compress and a cooling blanket. Like, that's all you can fucking do at this point. And then ice was collected to pour onto towels to apply to Libby's body. Like, oh my god. It should not have gotten to this point at 6.30 in the morning. Right. So there is some discrepancy about Libby's state of consciousness and her appearance, with some remembering that at this point she was somewhat responsive and others believing 
others remembering, perhaps, that she was unresponsive and pale, but there was no disagreement about what happened next. At 6.40 a.m., Libby's heart stopped beating. Mm. They had four minutes to get it beating again to avoid brain death, and who knows mm. how much brain damage she had experienced because of her fever Already at this, at point. this point, right? Nurse Grimer applied cardiopulmonary resuscitation and called the cardiac arrest team. Nurse Bald retrieved the crash cart. Dr. Weinstein was not on the floor. She wasn't on pace in five. So the first doctor to respond was first-year resident Dr. Pillette, followed by chief resident and head of the cardiac arrest team, Dr. Carr. The call was made for Dr. Weinstein on whatever floor she was on, but she did not immediately respond. And I don't recall why she said she didn't immediately respond, but she didn't respond until... Over, like, the PA system, they said that somebody was coding on pace in five, and then she was like, oh, shit, and then she went running. So there was not mm. an immediate emergent response from her. The team tried for 55 minutes to revive Libby with no success. They attempted intubation, defibrillation, a breathing bag, calcium chloride, epinephrine, sodium bicarbonate, and even Narcan. At no point was the second-year resident and supervisor, Dr. Stone, ever called during oh this. Oh, my God. And at seven It's just a bunch of students, essentially. It, yeah, it's a bunch of That were of all interns. fumbling around. Yeah. I mean, they do have Dr. Carr, who is a chief resident, but, like, that's, that's it. That's it, though. Yeah, one person okay. to help somebody who's been experiencing an intense fever for how many hours? Right. So at 7.30 a.m. on March 5, 1984, Libby Ethel Zion was pronounced dead. Mm. An autopsy was performed on March 6, and Libby was entombed on March 7. Libby's father, Sidney, had not wanted to identify Libby's body at the morgue and instead sent two people from the New York City Council to do so. But he did make eight calls to the office between March 6 and March 11. Now, having worked in a medical examiner's office, I will say that none of that is uncommon. I don't even think we have people come to the morgue to identify bodies anymore. Like, that is kind of an inhumane practice that I think we've right. generally stopped because nobody wants to see their loved one dead and there's other ways you can identify a body. But the reason that Sydney's eye on, like, was continually checking in. Like, that is that is very common for people to check in and check in and check in. And there's, there's a good reason for him because she died under the care of doctors, right? Like, sure. what happened to my daughter? What happened? Yeah. Like, she's in, in theory, like, at the safest place possible for her. Right. In was theory. There, right. And, like, was there something we missed? Did she have something that was intense? Was there something we should know about? When the family finally received Libby's death certificate, the cause of death was listed as pneumonia. <sighs> oh, my God. So the autopsy... So had... they had to be a little bit taken back by that, I'm sure. <sighs> oh, my God. If I had this and somebody was like, oh, she died of pneumonia, I would have been like, I was in the ER with her and there was no fluid right. in her young lungs, so what the fuck? Right. So the autopsy had taken an hour and a half and had been conducted by two doctors. One of them determined her cause of death was bilateral bronchopneumonia, and the other doctor explained that she actually died from hemorrhagic pneumonia. 
Either way, this cause of death would suggest that Libby died from a bacterial infection of some kind, which had been ruled out. And, like, that's not to say that bacterial infections can't incubate over a long period of time, but she was in the hospital for less than eight hours. Right. Right. They made few other notes, but they <clears throat> did report that she had rashes covering parts of her skin and her liver had congestion, which is a pretty notable thing for an autopsy. They also noted that only 10% of her lungs were inflamed, and that would not be enough to cause death. And actually, this was probably caused by the extensive 55-minute-long resuscitation efforts. Right. For an 18-year-old like Libby, the more relevant finding at autopsy was the congestion of the liver because this is an indication that the body was reacting to an acute toxic exposure. Mmm. So Dr. Sherman called the family to discuss the autopsy report with them and walk them through it, and he explained to them that nothing was found which would explain why Libby died so suddenly. Even if it was pneumonia, that really doesn't explain why she died so suddenly. He told them about the minor presence of the pneumonia, but he also said that all of her organs were normal, which was not true. And this is the part that really ticks me off. Toxicology testing had been conducted on March 7th, but not signed off by the tox lab director until May 8th. And honestly, this is like a pretty typical wait time. But this tox lab was also experiencing like a lot of miscommunicating between people and people not trusting each other. And so there was just a lot of bullshit happen happening bes mm. behind the scenes that could have delayed okay. testing. But if anybody is unfortunately in the position of having somebody who dies and they have to wait this long nowadays for talks like this is a very typical wait time okay okay antemortem blood collected by the hospital was tested and detected cocaine via radioaminoassay which is ria however there were several issues with the chain of custody of the blood and the chain of custody is making sure that every time that it is touched or moved, it is noted. Gotcha. And so there was an issue with Libby's because two vials of blood were collected, but one had a date from five days before Libby entered the hospital. What? And the other had no date. Okay. So we're starting Both off. Prob Both are problematic. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's not... Like, it was even a computer, probably. Like, it might have been a computer with a barcode, but I, I suspect it was probably handwritten. So it's like, if you have a handwritten date that's five days off, that is very suspect. Yeah. And I couldn't find a copy of the tox report online or anything, but there does seem to be a dispute over the preservation methods of the blood and whether it was the correct type of tube or preservative for the analysis conducted. And I kind of wonder if the controversy isn't like the correct tiger top tube. Like if you get your blood drawn, it's usually kind of a small tube and a purple top, and that means that it's a specific kind of preservative. And we've, we've mm -hmm. talked about this a bit before. But I think with Libby's, she actually had some sort of culture sample that had been taken at the hospital, and then that was tested for cocaine. And so it was like 90% culture and 10% blood, and that is mm. not at all whatsoever not even the ideal, like, that's just not even something that you should test for toxicological levels of drugs Anything. for. Right. Yeah, like, that's not a good sample. Don't send that to me as a toxicologist. Like, you're doing your own thing with the culture. Don't send that to me. Right. So there was some controversy with that. That's her antemortem blood. 
Post-mortem blood collected at autopsy was also analyzed and did not detect cocaine or its metabolite benzylalanine, and that is important because cocaine can continue to convert to benzylalanine in your tube after it's collected. Like, regardless of whether it's post-mortem or antemortem, cocaine is a, is a pretty sensitive analyte, but cocaine is the only thing that creates benzylalanine, and so that's actually what we look for. Like, if, okay. you, if you have a really, really intense amount of cocaine, like you snorted whatever Charlie Sheen said he did, like that amount of cocaine, like, yeah, we'll see that cocaine, that parent in your blood, but we're primarily looking for the metabolite benzylalanine. Gotcha. Okay. And so her blood didn't show cocaine or its metabolite. But they so also it showed neither. Neither showed thing. Neither thing. But they did take nasal swabs, which I've never seen a nasal swab. I've never worked with it. But they were suspecting that maybe she had done cocaine. And so they did a nasal swab, and they did detect benzylalignine this way. But it couldn't be confirmed because there was insufficient material for testing. And if something hmm. cannot be confirmed, it should not be reported. Like, in the lab, it's something where you say, oh, I think I saw it. I want to test for it, test for it again. I want to confirm it. That reading should never leave the lab because there are so many ways that you might have a suspected reading that you can't confirm. Mm, gotcha. And what I think is really... Like only report what you're 100% certain on. Absolutely. Like if you suspect it, it's not worth talking about it all because it doesn't mean anything. Okay. And what I think is really weird is that they only analyzed the post-mortem blood for cocaine via RIA, that radioimmunoassay, but they didn't confirm for the benzylalignine in the antemortem blood via GC, despite having the ability to do so. So all of this RIA stuff, nowadays at least, that's considered presumptive. But they had the ability to confirm, to say, we can see this. And Is that an NGC gas chromatograph? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And they did not confirm it. In antimodem and postmortem, they did not confirm it. Mm. Furthermore, in August, the samples were retested by the lab because, again, this lab is experiencing some bullshit. They don't trust each other's work. But the samples were negative for cocaine. And I will say that if there were trace levels, like, because, as I was saying, cocaine can degrade to its metabolite. It's possible that there wouldn't be any present at retesting, even if it was stored properly. Mm, but okay. I, th I think you should still be able to see benzylalignine, and they could not. So none of this should have left the lab. According to her toxicology that should have left the lab and been signed off, there is no cocaine in her system, as far as I'm concerned. It's possible that Libby had done cocaine in the days before her death. I really don't care if Libby did or did not sure. ever do cocaine. Like, that is not my business. And it could have contributed to serotonin syndrome if she did do cocaine because she was on an MAOI. I want everyone who's listening right now to take this home. If you are on an MAOI or an SSRI, Anything that increases the serotonin in your body, doing cocaine can cause serotonin syndrome, and you should know that. But I don't think it was something that should have been brought up in determining her cause of death or in the court proceedings to follow because it was never accurately verified. It right. cannot contribute to her cause of death in the hospital. 
Like, the cocaine has nothing to do with it. At that point, it's just serotonin syndrome, right? But, big but, the whole rest of this fucking story is going to hinge on the defense saying there was presence of cocaine and that's the reason she died, rather than Ugh. any sort of malpractice on behalf of the hospital, which is a weak-ass fucking argument. Yeah. Like, I just, I can't overstate how badly they harped on this, like, minor unconfirmed presence of cocaine and sydney sydney's ion like i said he was a writer but he like when he worked in a journalistic capacity he wrote for the, like the new york post you know it's like a, is, are mm -hmm. you a journalist if you write for the new york post don't come at me but like seriously think about your choices <laughs> but after the grand jury gave their statement the hospital fought back and doubled down on this cocaine and Zion wrote back, and so now there's this journalistic back and forth. We're not even talking about the case anymore, really. Right. And the DA defending the hospital so that it was possible that Libby did cocaine while in the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I I feel like that is defamation of character. Like, they, they never... Yeah. They never posed it as defamation of character, but it's like she didn't do it in the fucking hospital. She didn't do it yeah. at any point while she had this fever, I am pretty sure. Like I said, I don't care one way or another. Like, I'm not on anybody's side here. This happened years before I was even fucking born. But this whole cocaine thing is such an ugly distraction to me, especially yeah. having worked in a tox lab where it's like I would I would tell the medical Never. examiner, like, hey, I think I saw this, but it is not worth reporting because I could not confirm it. Right. Ugh. So <sighs> anyhow, on May 8th, Libby's death certificate was amended by the associate medical examiner to read that her death was caused by, quote, acute pneumonitis four days following dental extraction and in the course of treatment with erythromycin, hyperpyrexia and sudden collapse shortly following injection of mepiperidine and haloperidol while in restraint for toxic agitation, history of therapeutic phenylazine injection unclassified. So let's break that down, because that's a lot of medical examiner jargon. Mm -hmm. Hyperpyrexia is high fever, which is usually caused by an infection. Okay. The meperidine that I mentioned is the Demerol, which was known to be administered, but which not found in Libby's toxicology. And so it makes me, like, kind of wonder about the things that they did find, if they couldn't find something right. that, like, we know was administered. She had just, and that she had just taken hours before her death. Right, right. So the, the haloperidol is the Haldol she was given. And again, we know that that was administered. Mm -hmm. And then the phenylzine is the Nardil. And I'm not sure why it says history of injection because she was taking Nardil pills. So I don't know what kind of verbiage they're using for that reason. But anyhow, the Haldol was not found in her toxicology. And that I can kind of believe because it's it's possible that it was because it was a one milligram dose and so it was too small to be seen in the blood. The Nardil was also not found in her system, but Nardil can continue to have effects on the body for 14 days after the last dose. And so, again, I'm kind of skeptical about what they were able to find, but the Nardal, she said, I didn't take my antidepressant the day before she died, and I believe her. When you are prescribed something like Nardal and they actually tell you everything that they're supposed to tell you, they say things like, hey, don't take Nardal in a 14-day window of taking things like 
oxycodone because there's 14 days where you're not taking it and it still acts on the body. Right, the half-life of it. Mm-hmm. And then what they did find, what they were able to actually put in her tox report was traces of the chlortrimeton, Tylenol, and Percodan. All of those were in the beast system. So there are a number of drug-drug interactions that should have been monitored by someone on Libby's medical team. It was in part on Libby, of course, to use drugs responsibly. And I'm not going to say that she was irresponsible with drugs or her health just because she smoked pot and did cocaine. Like, again, I don't care. And I'm not going to diminish the possibility that she knew the dangers of cocaine. Just because it's 1984 doesn't mean people are thinking that it's, a, like, a nothing drug. Like, maybe she did, but right. maybe she knew, like, cocaine's not good for you. Like, yeah, people know that cocaine's not good for them, and right. they still do it. And maybe, you know, maybe she even knew, like, oh, I shouldn't take cocaine and drink or whatever. But I still think that it was the responsibility of providers writing prescriptions to be aware of drug-drug interactions and to emphasize those dangers to their patients so that the patient can make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that happened. I don't believe that happened because of all of the things that she was prescribed. And I also don't believe it happened just because of, like, we were talking about at the top of the episode, like, your provider doesn't really tell you about the drugs that you're on. Right. Like, no. When I went to that PCP that I was telling you about, it was managing my, my prescriptions, and I was like hey, I have low blood pressure and I think this is fucking with me. She was like, no, you should drink more water. And I was like, I think <laughs> that this is a salt thing, actually. Like, should I increase my salt? And she's like, no, drink water. And like, sure, I'm one of the many chronically hydrated people walking the earth. I should drink more water. But I went home and I read that it takes salt out of your blood. And I was like, I'm experiencing hyponatremia. And my provider didn't catch that when I was telling her right. point blank, I think this is what is happening. Right. So, like, I they're, just... They're not on... We can't trust them to be on the ball. No. No. And so I don't <laughs> think that they were on the ball with Libby. I don't think that they told her, like, hey, watch out for these things. And I have it listed later later on the episode. I will go into detail on this. But there's a lot you need to avoid when you're on an MAOI. Like, there's a lot. So she should have been asked what medication she was on. Like, first thing. Like, not even... What recreational drugs do you take? She should have just been asked, what have you been prescribed recently and what are you still taking? Mm -hmm. Because most of the drugs she was on could cause sedation and drowsiness and needed to be monitored somewhat closely. And specifically, this is when she was told, go get OTC chlortrimeton. And, you know, it's like, it's not advised to operate cars and machinery. We hear that all the time. Like, don't take NyQuil and drive your car. Like, right. I'm not going to. I'm going to take NyQuil and then pass the fuck out. Right. So, you know, it's reasonable that she assumed, like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna be drowsy, whatever. But it still should have been monitored by a physician who was aware that she was on Nardal, Dalmain, and Valium. Like, all of those things will make you very sleepy. And maybe that mm -hmm. should be emphasized a little bit more. Like, hey, you're not gonna, just going to be drowsy. You're going to be, like, really drowsy. Like, keep an you're eye gonna on You're going to be, this. like, exhausted. Yeah. Beyond that, there were also several medications that should have been changed because of the serious reactions that they produced together. Percodan should never have been prescribed to someone on Nardal, and erythromycin should not have been given to someone on Valium because of the altered drug metabolism it causes in the body. So it can cause you to either hang on to it or metabolize it super quickly. Either way, that needs to like not be prescribed together. Right. 
Nardil also increases the toxicity of oxycodone by some unknown mechanism, but we know that it possibly slows down the ability of the body to metabolize it, and it can increase the chance of low blood pressure, fever, and death. <sighs> but that okay, is not the worst fuck. part. Not even, okay. not even fucking close to the worst part, actually. Okay. She should have been warned entirely against using another cold medicine, which was found at autopsy, and this was Dristan cold. Dristan reacts with Nardil to create an acute hypertensive episode. Your oh blood pressure God. can get so high that you fucking die. <sighs> so, on its own, Nardil could cause side effects, including, as I mentioned before, low blood pressure, but also dizziness, headache, tremors, twitching, myoclonic <laughs> movements, and hyperreflexia. And that kind of sounds pertinent to this case. An overdose of Nardil could cause rashes, slurred speech, confusion, restlessness, rapid heartbeat, trouble breathing, sweating, and fever. Oh my god. Nardil was also contraindicated with a number of foods that have a high concentration of tyramine or dopamine because it could cause hypertension, much like the interactions with drifting cold medicine. And this is what I was saying earlier, like, you have to really be on top of it if you're going to prescribe this to someone. If Libby was properly advised, she would have been warned against eating anything pickled, aged, smoked, or otherwise fermented. She couldn't have eaten salami, sauerkraut, cheese, yogurt, yeast extract. She had to watch caffeine intake, and she couldn't eat fucking fava beans. This sounds terrible. Yeah. Quite frankly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you need to be on it, fine. If it's helpful to people, fine. But for them to be like, oh. you have to be oh, careful as fuck. Yeah. And for, her, for them to be like, oh, she took cocaine and it's her fault. She could have eaten fucking cheese on Nardle and you fuckers wouldn't have caught it, would you? Right. Right. Like, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so beyond mad. And this happened ages ago. I mean, we're coming up on like the 40th year anniversary of her death. And they just, they didn't take any accountability. And We'll get into it. We'll talk about it. But, like, having first and second year students try to remember all this, because, like, this is a lot. I admit, That's a lot I, of information. Yeah, and I admit I don't remember things unless they're written down in front of me. I've misspoke on this podcast before, and now it's out and everybody can hear me having done that. But nobody died, did they? And, right. <laughs> like, right. We, we can't put that much pressure on first and second year students to remember that if you have nardal which is an naoi on board maybe you should ask if they've had fava beans recently right like because <sighs> it's so it's so random and peculiar like there's yeah yeah anyway oh my god that's so much that's so much to consider oh, i don't feel like this is a tagline at this point but venus it gets worse <laughs> how worse how much worse does it get if they had been familiar with the drug, they also could have avoided another serious drug-drug interaction that very possibly caused the death of Libby Zion. Everything oh else up God. to this point has just been serious. In her control. In, in her control, well, but in also... Her control. This is just serious. This is don't or do... Not, not in her control, but pre-hospital visit. Yeah. But the administration of even a single subtherapeutic dose of 
Demerol within 14 days of use of Nardil can elicit excitation, seizures, delirium, hyperpyrexia, circulatory collapse, coma, and death from serotonin syndrome. And oh my is God. the worst drug-drug interaction of this entire case. And they, that was the one that they wanted to give her just to get her limbs to stop with just, the just to calm her down because yeah. the physical because she was agitated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. MAOIs inhibit metabolism of serotonin, as we said before, and Demerol increases the release of endogenous serotonin, so the serotonin that you naturally produce. This overabundance of serotonin in the body leads to the stimulation of at least seven different families of receptors and acts on the body both peripherally and centrally. Peripheral serotonin causes vaso and bronchoconstriction, uterine contraction, and platelet aggregation. Central serotonin impacts wakefulness, attention, and thermoregulation. It increases anxiety and can cause migraines, vomiting, and aggression. Now, diagnoses of serotonin syndrome can be difficult, and it is mainly a diagnosis of exclusion, although there are some criteria which have been developed to help clinicians catch the syndrome early on in its presentation. The Hunter's serotonin toxicity criteria include use of a serotonergic agent in at least one of the following. Spontaneous muscle spasms. Fucking check. Jim. <laughs> Inducible muscle spasms with agitation or sweating. Ocular spasms, so this is like ping-ponging eyes, plus agitation and sweating, tremor and hyperreflexia, and muscles which are stiff to move, or a temperature above 100.4. Just 100.4. Yeah. Serotonin syndrome can develop as a chronic condition from starting or stopping drugs like MAOIs. You can get it just from being on it or stopping it. A key... Mm. Acute serotonin syndrome from drug-drug interactions can require medical attention within six hours. With proper medical treatment, the symptoms can be resolved within 24 hours, and this would include putting the patient on oxygen and giving them fluids, along with sedation with benzodiazepines for the hypertension and tachycardia, and the administration of a serotonin antagonist to prevent serotonin from binding to receptors. So even if you have an overabundance of serotonin, if they administer an antagonist, that will bind to the receptor without and engaging it. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like putting a key in a lock that it doesn't turn. The key might fit because it's also, you know, it's a door lock and a door key, but you can't turn it. Gotcha. Okay. And an antagonist in this case would be something like catiapine or trazodone could easily be administered. This is what should have been done for Libby, especially after the administration of Demerol when her situation became more life-threatening. She probably needed to be taken to the ICU for her care, and she possibly needed to be intubated to prevent the cardiac collapse that killed her. Mm. Even if they didn't jump to serotonin syndrome immediately, they could have reasonably gotten there because some of the differential diagnoses for serotonin syndrome include meningitis and sympathomimetic drug overdose, like cocaine. They were so on. What they, they were on the right. They were on the right track. Yeah, but they. But just they didn't chose... get off at the right station. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I really like that. Yeah. They... <laughs> They passed the station and then it started to circle back and they were like, what if it's cocaine again? And then they crashed the fucking, and then they crashed the fucking train. Fucking for real. (sighs) 
But they weren't looking at drugs, right? Like, not really. Like, they were looking at cocaine. But her death certificate, you know, it said she died under restraint with toxic agitation. But they weren't really looking at drugs. Had they been looking at drugs, had they been considering maybe there's some sort of drug interaction going on, they probably would have monitored her better. Or they wouldn't have given her additional drugs until her blood work came back with that tox report they were waiting on. Or they might have thought more deeply about drug-drug interactions. But Dr. Stone had noted that Libby was hysterical. And they thought that she was a difficult patient with a simple fever. So they restrained her physically and chemically. Arguably, they did this because they weren't really interested in finding out what was wrong with Libby Zion. She was just a rich girl who was a difficult patient and they wanted a simple solution for it. Maybe if there wasn't a single resident responsible for multiple floors of people, or if there was a more experienced doctor reporting for duty that night who knew about Nardle, Libby Zion would have lived. Mm. It's tragic. Like, it's really tragic. It's tragic how avoidable it was and how the entire time, despite her incoherence because her brain was on fire, she was trying to advocate for herself. She was, like... She was describing what was going on with her to the best of her abilities. She... I think she was telling the truth about her illicit drug use. I don't think she'd done cocaine recently, you know? Right. I know. Like, well, and and, I mean, if she had been having this fever for days, like, that's not going to be at the top of the list when you have a fever. You know what I mean? Like, you're not, like, trying to get party drugs, like... Yeah. And get turned up, like, when you're dealing with a fever. Yeah. And she had already been dealing with the tooth pain. Like, she didn't go, she didn't even stay at her going away party for that long. Like, yeah. She, like, she wasn't trying to party, literally. So, according to the medical examiner, quote, the bottom line was there was a reaction between Nardle and Demerol. And that's from the medical examiner. On July 17th, 1985, Sydney Zion filed a malpractice suit against New York Hospital, Dr. Sherman, Dr. Leonard, Dr. Weinstein, and a Dr. John Doe because they couldn't remember Dr. Stone's name. And the, the hospital actually initially refused to release his name to them so that they couldn't name him in their Prosecute him, suit. yeah. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And the grand jury first assembled on May 5th, 1986, and then held 24 sessions over the following six months. By then, New York Hospital was already quietly making changes based on malpractice deaths besides Libby's at their own hospital, as well as changes being made at other area hospitals. For instance, in 1986, there was now an attending doctor on duty in the emergency room at all times, so residents like Dr. Leonard would not be left alone to admit patients. Also, every department at the hospital now had a quality control committee. Okay. On December 31st, 1986, a report was submitted into public record from the New York Supreme Court regarding the care and treatment of patients and the supervision of interns and residents in New York County, and this was the first time that a report of this nature had ever been issued. Although Libby Zion and New York Hospital were not named in the report, 
It demanded corrective legislation to avoid similar deaths at the hands of unsupervised residents working unlimited consecutive hours under inadequate and ill-defined laws. It also recommended research into the possibility of installing a computerized system in hospitals that would allow staff to check for contraindicated drugs. Ultimately, the grand jury could not determine why Libby died, but they did believe that the onus was largely on the hospital and not on Libby's behavior. The jury did not believe that pneumonia played into her death and that the restraints were a bigger culprit because her temperature could have continued to rise as she fought against them. Mm. They did not believe that cocaine played a role in her death and that it was more likely caused by the mixture of Nardolin Demoral. Like, fucking obviously, but whatever. Right. They at least saw through the bullshit, though. Yeah. Like, this is good. They conceded that Libby's drug history might have been incomplete when questioned, but that regardless of that, and even if they did think that she was having a reaction to cocaine, that, quote, a physician suspecting a drug reaction should not rule out the possibility of a drug interaction merely because the patient denies having used drugs, end quote. And more importantly, that both conditions, pneumonia and a cocaine reaction, are treatable right right like they're, they're not wrong no they're not wrong you can come to a hospital with issues related to either and they should be able to help you and it shouldn't matter who you are or what you've done like that's the hippocratic oath right the grand jury's report led to the establishment of a commission called the bell commission by 1987 the bell commission started making preliminary recommendations to the new york state department of health these included limiting the hours residents could work to 12 per day in emergency care and 16 per day elsewhere. On July 1, 1989, new regulations were adopted in New York State based on the Bell Commission's recommendations, and these were Non-surgical staff should not work more than 80 hours per week, on average over four weeks. Residents should not work more than 24 consecutive hours. <laughs> You think? <laughs> you think. Scheduled rotations need to be separated by at least eight non-working hours and one 24-hour non-working period each week. So you need to have at least a full day off between weeks. That's nice of them. <laughs> Residents must be supervised by attending physicians at all times. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> Aids, technicians, and other auxiliary services should be available such that house staff is not overburdened by housekeeping on top of medical duties. These were originally called the Bell Regulations, or the 405 Regulations, but they also became known as the Libby Laws. There aren't actually laws, though, because hospitals can't be charged with crimes if they don't follow them. They are just regulations, but... I mean, they do seem like very reasonable regulations. Like, I don't really want they a doctor. They seem more than, an, more than reasonable. Yeah. I don't really want a doctor who's been working more than 24 hours. Like, Right. You start hallucinating at a certain point. I don't really want right. that. Right. So, as far as charges go, on March 12, 1987, New York Hospital was fined $13,000 by the New York State Department of Health for their treatment of Libby Zion. The hospital actually admitted that their staff failed to give her adequate medical care that would have saved her life. But even though they admitted this, they still somehow were like, yeah, we gave her we, we inadequate care, but like we don't 
assume fault in a way like they still separated themselves despite being like this one was on us like it was a very and that fine is nothing it, it, it is, is nothing. nothing it is nothing yeah dr sherman like, i'm sure that her her hours long hospital stay cost more oh, than the yeah. fine i'm sure like, i'm sure but dr sherman believed that the hospital shouldn't even have admitted to wrongdoing on this level because he still held that the people working that night didn't do anything wrong in regards to her care on April 30th, 1987, doctors Weinstein and Stone attended their first of 30 meetings before the New York State Board for Professional Medical Conduct. Both were tried with 38 acts of gross negligence or incompetence. The charges include failure to get a complete medical history for Zion, failure to monitor her condition and vital signs, placing restraints, and giving Demerol when it was known that Zion was on Nardal. Dr. Leonard was not charged with any wrongdoing by the board. Charges of fraud and gross negligence were filed against Dr. Sherman for more than just Libby, actually. Another patient, only identified as patient B, claimed that Dr. Sherman misdiagnosed a severe condition over the phone, which delayed her from going to the emergency room and causing her unnecessary pain. Dr. Sherman was cited with failing to obtain medical histories, failing to perform examinations, improperly ordering drugs, failure to supervise other physicians, rendering improper diagnosis, and giving false testimony in separate New York State Board hearings. And Dr. Sherman was the family friend, not friend. Yeah, friend. Questionable not, yeah. friend, right? No, not a friend right. after okay. this, for sure. Just making sure. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. On September 23, 1989, the New York State Board for Professional Medical Conduct dropped all charges against Dr. Weinstein what? and Stone. No. However, on May 26, okay. 1990, the New York <laughs> State Board of Regents overturned the verdict of the State Board and ar argued that Dr. Weinstein's failure to personally examine Libby Zion when she was called back to the floor by nurses was totally unacceptable and they found her guilty of gross negligence. They also found Dr. Stone guilty of gross negligence for his note in her summary, which diagnosed Libby with hysterical syndromes, which yeah. biased to the care she was given by the team and yeah. led to inadequate treatment. Yep, that's awesome. Okay, okay. But neither doctor had their medical license pulled. Rather, they were penalized with a censure and reprimand, which is a public warning that puts the doctor on notice about unacceptable behavior. Dr. Sherman's case was also cleared by the New York State Board, and on April 26, 1991, the Board of Regents dismissed his case. Then, on October 31, 1991, the New York State Supreme Court Appellate Division voted unanimously to overturn the censure and reprimand of Stone and Weinstein, and their records were cleared. Essentially, they had done nothing wrong. Oh, well. Okay. And I mean, well, there is... It was, it was almost like they tried to do something. <laughs> like... Almost. And I mean, I don't know. It is like they overturned it because they were like the lives and the careers of people who were first and second year residents don't deserve to be destroyed over this case. And it's like, yeah, they were students, but they should have called someone. They and... should have. They should have asked for help. They when they, when they realized they were out of they they should have realized when they were out of their depth mm -hmm. and asked for help. And 
I don't know, doctors are some of the hardest kinds of people I've ever wor worked with. Like, the level of arrogance that comes out of a doctor is fucking unbelievable. And I feel like it this, is. this residency structure fostered that arrogance. Yeah. You know? Like, they should have called someone because an 18-year-old girl fucking died because Demerol was administered in the presence of Nardal. And I, I don't know, does, does somebody's medical license deserve to be pulled for that? I guess I believe so. I don't think that they should practice medicine, but it's also like they were working in a system that didn't help them succeed. But right. I don't I just don't think that's what criminal charges look at. Criminal charges look at like, what did you do in the situation? And in this situation, they didn't call anyone. Right. They they didn't ask anybody for expertise. They were not experts mm -hmm. like in the situation. They should have asked for somebody to help them. Yeah. When they weren't getting any results. Like, yeah. And I do. And I mean, and I'm glad that they called her out. Like she it was negligence for her to not come back when the nurses were like, yeah, things are getting real. Yeah. And she's just like, yeah, no, nah, I'm, yeah. I'm busy. Yeah, busy. it's fine. I'm sure she's fine. She has a fever, whatever. Right. And I mean, I don't know. I don't side with Sydney Zion, who is leading the charge on all of this. But I understand where he's coming from. Like his. Sure. His daughter died, and he doesn't want anybody else's daughter to die. So his civil suit against the doctors had failed to bring charges. The grand jury had failed to bring criminal charges. And the state board had failed to bring charges. He wasn't happy with the hospitals. He wasn't happy with the doctors. And, you know, they were ostensibly guilty for her death, and they were being allowed to continue practicing medicine on other people. Unfortunately, even with these, you know, Libby laws, the 405 regulations, they had been in place for several years now. By 1992, 12 states had initiated their own regulations for improving residency training in hospitals. And you'd think, like, that Sydney Zion could look at that and be like, things are changing. You know, some good is coming mm -hmm. of my charge against all of this and my putting a spotlight on all of this. But unfortunately, according to studies conducted in New York hospitals, the 405 regulations had done little to change the way that medicine was being performed. And this mm. could have been because knowledge of the regulations did not always trickle down to the residents of these hospitals. Oh. So they weren't even given access to it. No, they weren't told about them. They weren't enforced. And the funds which had been set aside for improving supervision at hospitals was often lost in the general operating budgets of the hospitals. They were getting money, and then it wasn't actually going towards improving residency wow. programs. At the same time, the report which was analyzing these implementations, or lack thereof, did indicate that 60% of attending doctors and residents supported the 405 regulations when they were made aware of them. Like, yeah, this would be great if this was something we did. If I didn't work 110 hours a week. That would be fan-fucking-tastic. Yeah, like... I would love to only work 80, but <laughs> hmm. didn't know that I had a choice. Yeah. On April 27th, 1993, New York Hospital filed for a partial summary judgment, which is like a procedural version of a trial. And they were asking for the New York Supreme Court to dismiss Zion's claim for punitive damages. And they also wanted the charges of gross negligence and wanton conduct removed from Zion's lawsuit against them. And there was a, an absolute fucking shit show happening behind the scenes during all of this, honestly. Like, this book could have been much shorter, but it described the drama going on behind the scenes. Gotcha. <laughs> there was a lot of it. <laughs> so, 
Weinstein and Stone were still able to practice, as was Sherman. Like, you know, no charges had been really brought and kept against them. But Stone had to be represented by a different lawyer than the hospital because Sherman disagreed on how the administration of Demerol was handled. But he still didn't think it was gross malpractice. But either way, he was like, I think that you did this, and so I'm talking Mm. shit on you, and so now we need different lawyers, and it was a whole thing. Oh, my God. And then during it, like, Sidney Zion was being represented by a lawyer who was doing pretty well. Like, they just wanted $1 awarded to them for the malpractice because it wasn't about the money. It was more about, like, changing things. But that lawyer got disbarred over the course of Oh, my God. Yeah. And so then he had to get a different lawyer. And it wasn't for, like, the, the Zion case, but it was just, like, he happened to be a shitty lawyer who got disbarred. Right. Wow. New York in the 90s. <laughs> right. Pre-trial hearings for the civil suit against New York Hospital did not begin until November 10th, 1993. And trial proceedings for the wrongful death suit against Drs. Sherman, Leonard, Stone, Weinstein, and New York Hospital did not begin until a year later on November 10th, 1994, over 10 years after Libby's death. Discussion about Libby and malpractice in New York Hospital had mostly fallen silent in the media in the last decade, except for a few pieces written by Sidney Zion himself, and some public hearings that loosely pertain to the case, which were actually conducted by the New York City Council, which Libby had worked for. But the trial itself was filmed for court TV, and it was aired on ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN, and was reported on by journalists from the AP, all major papers in New York, the Toronto Star, People Magazine, and Wired Magazine. So there was no keeping the results of this quiet since it was being this right. widely distributed. It was big. It was a big enough deal. Yeah. Yeah. The jury announced their decision on February 6, 1995. The verdict sheet for the jury was extensive, consisting of 45 yes or no questions regarding what the jury thought was a departure from accepted medical practice. Based on this set of questions, the jury found almost unanimously that all but 10 issues were followed according to accepted medical practice. They found that permitting the use of Demerol, a direction Dr. Sherman gave Dr. Stone, and Dr. Weinstein's ordering of the drug to be used were departures which were a proximate cause of Libby's pain and suffering or death. They also believed Dr. Weinstein should have visited Libby after Nurse Grimer called for her and that this departure contributed to pain and suffering or death, and they believed she should have consulted with a more experienced doctor. No shit. Fucking said. (laughs) No shit. No shit. (laughs) New York Hospital was found negligent in their workload assignment to Dr. Weinstein the weekend of Libby's death, but that it was not a proximate cause of her death. They found that Libby had ingested cocaine on March 4th, 1984, well, like the day before she entered the hospital, and this contributed to her death. They found that Libby was negligent with respect to her medical history, despite her brain being on fire, essentially, Mm -hmm. and that this contributed to her death. So your own condition contributed to your own death. Ugh. So the jury decided that Libby's death was 50% the fault of the hospital and 50% the fault of Libby herself. Oh, my God. I know. (sighs) 
$750,000 was awarded to the Zions, but because of the 50-50 split in liability, they were only given $375,000. But the jury did seem to understand that the Zions weren't really looking for money. As I said before, initially they wanted just $1. They just wanted to get, mm-hmm. get $1 because they wanted something different to happen. They were looking for change. Damages were not assessed to New York Hospital or doctors Sherman Stone or Weinstein. According to one juror, who later wished she had pushed against this decision on the doctors, she said, I don't think they set out to kill Libby, but maybe some people should have been punished, especially Louise Weinstein. She could have done more for Libby. Totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. She could have done any amount more <laughs> like <laughs> like check and it would seem her. substantial yeah exactly yeah. taking her temperature once every hour <laughs> done. Right, yeah. like it, like there are so many things like that's why like it literally anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, and i mean there were i think it might have been the same juror but there were people who were like libby would have been better off staying at home than going to the hospital and it's like yeah her mom yeah, would have taken her temperature literally. once every hour and wouldn't have given mm-hmm. her demerol right So, Sidney Zion continued to push after this. He felt that cocaine should never have been allowed to be mentioned in the trial. He he very, very, very hard tried to fight against it ever being presented and lost in this first trial. And, like, I already said it before, but I totally agree. It should never have been Mm -hmm. admitted as evidence. In May of 1995, the judge who presided over the wrongful death case decided to set aside the use of cocaine, ruling that the jury improperly heard evidence about Libby's possible cocaine use. This meant that the jury's finding that Libby was 50% liable for her own death was thrown out. So did they end up, yeah, yay. So did they end up getting the whole award then? No. Does that mean? No, they still only got half of the award, but they weren't, you know, they weren't looking for it. I mean, essentially like. Right, but they, but they got it. That That's good. They, they put it, they put Grace on her name. The, yeah, yeah. So they, yeah. they fixed the, the smear that was on her name, but the Zion mm-hmm. still only got the, the 375000 Okay. Okay. In 2000, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education found that 29% of teaching hospital programs were in violation of duty hour regulations. And in 2003, they essentially made the 405 regulations in New York mandatory for all residency training programs in the United States to adhere to. So, Yay. yeah, right now in 2023, your residents can only work 80 hours and they have to have a day off a week and like all good stuff. All good, all stuff. good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. None of none of those regulations sounded unreasonable. No. Um, like, honestly, some of it's like maybe they should get more than eight hours off between shifts. You think? Maybe. <laughs> maybe? Yeah. But anyway. But, I mean, there have been hospitals who have made stricter regulations for themselves, and they've been like, we've seen improvements, and we've seen less. Mm -hmm. They don't call it – we've we've seen less adverse events. Errors in care. Yeah. Yeah. And so we suggest that everybody else adopts these because we've seen an improvement in care. But the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education has refused to adhere to anything more strict than this because they think that it impedes on residency programs and makes it too inflexible, right? Which I don't see how. Like, most people can work 40 hours a week. I get that we're in a, like, healthcare shortage right now, but, like, 
I just don't, I barely function after 40 hours a week. And I, I, I couldn't imagine working 80 hours a week. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. And I don't want to end with 20 year old data. You know, like the last thing I was able to find that was conclusive was in 2003. And I did read more studies, but I just don't feel like there's a lot of conclusions I can draw based on the information I found. It's, it's a bummer. Like there's no way to not end this whole episode on a huge fucking bummer. So in 2003, when the number of work hours was legally reduced to 80s hour, 80 hours per week for residents and like other 405-esque laws were passed, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement created a tool called the Global Trigger Tool for Measuring Adverse Events, which is a way to identify adverse events in hospitals and then measure the overall level of harm they present. And I don't know if this is like in conjunction with the computerized program that shows contraindicated drugs, but that was enforced, like, pretty soon after Libby's case. And, I mean, every everybody has a computer now, so, like, that's right. somewhat normal practice. But as you and I said, like, sometimes doctors don't use it. But anyhow, right. this, global, this global trigger tool, there have been a handful of studies that have examined the number of adverse effects detected in hospitals using this global trigger tool, as well as, like, trying to go back and retroactively assess how many adverse events weren't caught. But it's hard to draw a conclusion because the papers themselves have found that, like, not a lot of adverse effects or adverse events have been caught using this tool, but it could be because, like, adverse event is characterized differently from hospital to hospital like they don't mm, they're not just mm-hmm. measuring deaths right like that's a pretty low fucking bar to measure right so it's like they could be describing them differently or like some hospitals are using the tool and also employing like novel medical interventions that could knowingly result in adverse events but like that was discussed between the doctor and patient and like agreed on and then it happened and it's like okay we knew that we knew that it might be unavoidable like there's a lot going on like right the, these studies are important but they're like stepping stones to something that we have to assess in the future and like i feel like we should have been doing it more often but i found like three or four studies in the past 20 years and it's just not assessing. oh that's crazy that's crazy and i did find a study that specifically examined polypharmacy adverse events but it was a single study at one finished tertiary hospital like i don't know how much <laughs> you can say that that's a global experience right. in hospitals but that is to say that of the studies i was able to find none of them boded well for patient safety and our ability to identify or prevent adverse events mm. and they have appeared to be showing an increase of adverse events since at least the implementation of the 405 laws and the trigger tools, if not before. But I just, I mean, I don't, again, I don't want to be a bummer and be like, hospitals are dangerous and you're better off at home. Like, that is not always the case. But I just, I don't know how reliable the methodologies are, but they do point towards, like, things are still not great at hospitals. And I don't know, I don't want to scare anyone, but it's, like, the only conclusion I feel like I can draw is, like, you have to advocate for yourself, which is shitty. Like, that's a super fucking shitty place to be in, you know? Especially when you don't feel well and are going to the hospital. But you literally, like, have to. You're your only tool. Sometimes. And, like, I guess the whole point of bringing up this case is, like, to inform people about serotonin syndrome. Because, like... I didn't know about it until I worked at the coroner's office, and it wasn't even one of those things where it's like we were looking for serotonin. It was just like 
this person who committed suicide was on an SSRI. It's possible that it wasn't suicide. It's possible that it was actually serotonin syndrome and something mm -hmm. happened and it looks like a suicide and it should be investigated. Or like they were on an SSRI and we can't tell what the cause of death was. They were on an SSRI and they complained of fever and then they died in the hospital. Like right. I didn't know about it until I was in my 20s and I had already been prescribed an SSRI previously in my medical history. So I feel like if nothing else, people can walk away from this episode being like, oh, I know what it is. I know what to look for. Yeah. It's uh, fucking scary. It's, like, it's scary, especially when like doctors are authorities and you go in and you're like, I don't feel good. I feel like I have low blood pressure. I know this about myself and I'm pretty confident in this. And they're like, drink water. And then you go yeah. home and you look shit up and you're like, oh, I was right after all. Like, right. It sucks. It sucks. It's happened to me. I can admit to that. And I just, I encourage people to take a step back if you can. Like, if you pick up a prescription from a pharmacy, just take a step back and, you know, look at WebMD and be like, are these contraindicated before mm -hmm. I take it? Or if you're in a hospital with somebody who you care about and doctors are prescribing them things, like, try your best to be that advocate if you are in a place where you can do that and they're not. Like, definitely. Wow. That's the most I can say, because shit sucks right now. But serotonin mm. syndrome is a really, really unpleasant thing to to have to endure. And you can die from it. Yep. So, yeah. Watch watch out for yourself and your Watch out for ones, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And don't be don't be ashamed like to advocate for yourself or yeah. for somebody else. Yeah. Like, but also don't like, let them bully you. Yeah. But also don't be ashamed if, like, you find it hard to do it. Just. Oh, like, yeah. No, it's. I, I mean, I say this, like, as a chronically ill person, like, I say advocate for yourself, but I still find myself like, yeah. So do you ever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess being at a level six in pain is manageable. So, yeah, never mind. I don't mean to Never be mind. <laughs> I. It's not important. I'm sorry that I imparted on your day. Goodbye. Right. Like. <laughs> yeah no just like when you can when you can take a breath step back and make sure that like you feel okay moving forward because that is the most important yep. thing is that you feel okay yep. thank you for joining us we hope you enjoyed this episode please like follow subscribe and review us everywhere you get your podcasts for more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. <laughs>